welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in, coming back to the show. First-time listeners finding the show, welcome aboard. Always happy to have you. Go over to Counterpunch, get your subscription to Counterpunch, plus subscribing to Counterpunch is how you keep the lights on, how you keep the website going, you pay for all the back-end things that we have to pay for, you keep Counterpunch uh, publishing. It's been more than 30 years that Counterpunch has provided this platform on the left, and obviously we've been talking about it for months now, Uh, the war in Gaza, everything with regard to the Palestine issue. Counterpunch has really been a platform that has allowed those voices from Edward Said many years ago to many others up till today to provide that perspective, one that is increasingly under attack. If you believe that it is important to have a platform like that, one that you can trust year after year after year, go over to Counterpunch, subscribe to Counterpunch Plus, do the thing, I will say no more. And uh, speaking of that, let me turn to my uh, conversation today. Really excited to speak with these folks. Um, Really important report that was released a couple of months ago, actually. And um, I have the authors of the report with me. We're going to talk about it. Let me introduce them now. First, Sahar Aziz. Uh, Sahar is a distinguished professor of law and the Chancellor Social Justice Scholar at Rutgers Law School. Uh, She is the author of the very important book, The Racial Muslim, When Racism Quashes Religious Freedom. The website, saharazizlaw.com, at saharazizlaw on Twitter. Her co-author in the report we're going to be talking about today, Mitchell Plitnik. Uh, You probably know Mitchell if you're a a regular of the left and of issues related to Palestine. Mitchell is the president of Rethinking Foreign Policy. He's a co-author of the recent book, Except for Palestine, The Limits of Progressive Politics. He's been published all over the place. I recommend you follow him on Substack as well as on Twitter at MJ Plitnik. So Mitchell Plitnik, Sahar Aziz, welcome to Counterpunch Radio. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. So the the report, I mentioned it, I didn't even give its title, so let me not bury the lead here. The report uh, came out in November of 2023 entitled Presumptively Anti-Semitic Islamophobic Tropes in the Palestine-Israel Discourse. This was published by Rutgers University Law School Center for Security, Race, and Rights. So I want to just begin with the report before we start you know, broadening our conversation. Sahar, can you tell us a little bit about the origin of this report and kind of what motivated it, what brought it uh, into being? Well, thanks so much for having us today, because this can't be more timely. Although the report's been a work in progress for over a year, the timing of it is extremely relevant because many of the leaders, lawyers, academics, students who are Muslim or mistaken as Muslim, uh, for example, Arab Christians, are often attacked and defamed and smeared when they defend Palestinian human rights. And the most common accusation is that they are anti-Semitic, that perversely their desire to defend the human rights of a people, uh, Palestinians, is somehow seen as a threat to Jews. Uh, which, of course, is part of, I think, the right-wing propaganda of the Israeli government and parts of our own uh, society who support that kind of propaganda. So the, the report is based on a long-standing problem, which is, one, Islamophobia, uh, and two, a part of Islamophobia, which are certain tropes. Right? In any type of racism against a particular minority group, there are always tropes that are used to marginalize that group, to discredit it, to criminalize it, uh, to justify discrimination against it. And so most people will are hopefully by now are familiar with the common Islamophobic trope that Muslims are presumed to be terrorists or they're presumed to be misogynistic or, or violent. But the other trope that doesn't get as much attention, although right now we're starting to see it in full force, is the trope that Muslims hate Jews without any evidence. So it doesn't matter if they actually have proof. It's just presume that you are, unless you individually can prove that you are not. And the effect of that, the consequence of that, is not only that you individually are smeared when you're called that uh, and stigmatized, but it is that you are silenced, especially when it comes to engaging on Palestine and the discourse around Israeli policy and practices, around US foreign policy in Palestine and Israel, and so the, the 
you know, the impetus behind the report is similar to the impetus behind me writing The Racial Muslim, When Racism Crushes Religious Freedom, which is looking at how being a minority causes you to not have the full panoply of individual rights. In my book, it was about religious freedom. In this report, we're really looking uh, about political freedoms, free speech, uh, a right to a political assembly, and effectively to be an equal citizen in our political community without being accused of being hateful and being accused of um, hating another group of people simply because you're defending the human rights of Palestinians. Absolutely. And I'm going to follow up with you if I could, Sahar, and I'm going to get to Mitchell in a second. But I just wanted to make note of the fact that the report is touching on something that for those of us who have come of age in the 9-11 and post 9-11 era is really a bedrock uh, sort of issue as it relates to how American society has evolved since then. Islamophobia being kind of almost institutionalized in that post 9-11 era is sort of a foundational element of the so-called war on terror. So can you talk a little bit about how Islamophobia and Islamophobic tropes have become sort of standard fare within mainstream discourse post 9-11? And I wish this was not the case. You know, many of us who, I'm Muslim, I'm a member of the Muslim community, and I was in law school on 9-11. It completely transformed the trajectory of my own legal career because people in my community, including my own family, my friends, we felt under siege in all directions. And what we had really hoped is that it would be temporary, that it was a backlash against uh, the most serious uh, and dangerous terrorist attack that ever happened on U.S. soil, And that over time, people would realize that this is 19 hijackers who are criminals and whatever organization they're associated with is a criminal organization and a terrorist organization. And that we were no more guilty or responsible as Muslims than uh, white people or Christian people because Timothy McVeigh bombed the Oklahoma uh, federal building in 1995 in Oklahoma City. But unfortunately, the way that racism works in the United States, that is rarely the case. And so what we've seen over the last 22 years and counting is the Muslim ban, is uh, directed uh, immigration sweeps and deportation of Muslims, is refusal to allow Syrian refugees who are escaping authoritarian regime, you know, the Syrian regime, which is a brutal regime, but simply because they're Muslim while we welcome and open with open arms Ukrainians who are Catholic or Orthodox Christian. So that is how racism works, is that the identity that you have, the racial identity that, that has been imputed upon you, right, by the social construction uh, within our society, determines what privileges you have and what disadvantages you have. So Islamophobia is now, uh, for better or worse, a staple part of racism in America just as anti-Semitism is and anti-Black racism and anti-Latino racism. So it's not uh, Olympics, the oppression Olympics. That's not, and that's one of the problems with pitting anti-Semitism and Islamophobia, right? Is that it's as if, if you defend Islamophobia or combat, see to combat Islamophobia or somehow perpetuating anti-Semitism, or if you're trying to defend again, the rights of Palestinians, the majority of them are Muslim, but there's a sizable number that are Christian. It's as if you are fighting, uh, you, you are perpetuating anti-Semitism. So I think it's just really important to make that point. And, and you're right. The global war on terror is the broader overarching kind of socio-political frame that makes it so easy for people to dehumanize Palestinians and so easy for our government to approve another $14 billion to Israel while it is currently engaging in what the International Court of Justice has said is a plausible genocide. And what most genocide experts say is not just a plausible genocide, it is a genocide happening before our eyes. Well, I couldn't agree more with that, but I'm going to turn to Mitchell really quickly if I could. And I want to ask you, Mitchell, 
bring us forward to today as far as the timeline of this report and help us to understand why it's so timely. I mean, look, it's obviously self-evident. The report came out in November. The war, quote unquote, the beginning of the war was October 7th. Talk a little bit about the timing. How long were you guys working on this report, the timing of it coming out and the reception? Well, um, to be to be frank, the, the timing was in, in a sense, I it's an odd thing to say, but in a sense, kind of fortuitous. Um, it just happened that, um, you know, after we, we worked on this for a very long time. I mean, this was, this is the kind of report I think, and especially in the, in the atmosphere that existed long before, uh, October 7, you want to make sure that all the I's are dotted and all the T's are crossed. Um, and between that and, you know, of course, just the, the the general work of producing a, a a report that's easy to read that looks good and etc. Uh, it it simply worked out that the report came out just weeks after the October seventh attack and the beginning of Israel's onslaught on Gaza. Uh, but and 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 in that, I mean, I, I guess you know again we couldn't have been um, it, it couldn't have been uh, uh, appeared at a better time. Um, this report. Um, illustrates a lot of the dynamics that are going on um, in Europe and in the United States. We, we of course, are focusing here in, in the U.S., but um, it, it's happening just as intensely in Europe and Canada uh, and other places where support for Palestinians, for the basic rights of Palestinians, for, um, for Palestinians' right to just simply survive, um, is being called support for terrorism. And the root of that um, is is on the day of October 7. And the labeling of that attack, which was heinous, illegal, um, atrocious, um, and, and all of these other things, it, it goes beyond, in my view, uh, any, any, even the most radical interpretation of the right to resist, which Palestinians absolutely do have. But this, that attack went well beyond that. But it was immediately identified as an attack on Jews. It was immediately talked about as the worst attack on Jews since the Holocaust. And, um, you know, one of the arguments that I made right away, and I think it's a very important argument, is that, yes, most of the people who were attacked were Jewish, but they were not attacked because they were Jewish. They were attacked, um, and again, it, this doesn't make it okay, but they were attacked because they were Israeli or presumed to be Israeli. That is why they were attacked, and that is also why uh, many of the uh, a good number of the victims that we know about were not Jewish, um, it, because nobody was looking and asking them what their religion was, because that wasn't the issue. The issue was seventy-five years of dispossession, and these last few years, where the issue, where the question of Palestine has been intentionally shoved to the back burner, um, we can, you know, we don't know for certain. What prompted the timing of the October 7 attack? What what made Hamas decide to launch that attack at that time? But I think it's a fair presumption um, and certainly a fair at least initial uh, um, hypothesis that um, Hamas looked around and saw um, all these uh, trade deals and normalization agreements being made with Israel, um, the complete um, apathy of the entire, not only, frankly, not only the Western world, not only the United States, but of most of the Arab uh, leadership, uh, the leadership of Arab states uh, as well, all basically, you know, agreeing to sort of let Israel do what they called managing the conflict, which essentially meant long-term apartheid. Um, and that nobody was doing anything about it and that Palestinians were being gradually more and more uh, moved out of the picture. Um, that was what led to that attack. It had no, it had nothing to do with the victims being Jewish. But if you're going to then respond to that attack by launching a campaign of ethnic cleansing in Gaza, and what I think is very clearly, you know, again, I'm not a lawyer, so I'm more than happy to just go out on them and say, this is genocide. That is the program that is happening in Gaza right now. Um, if you're going to do that, you have to rile people up. Otherwise, they're going to—they're not going to stand for it. Even Israelis wouldn't stand for it. You have to—you um, have to really get people going, and you have to do something to rob the people who you're doing this to of their humanity. You do that uh, in this case by talking about the the 
talking about Palestinians and not only Hamas, but Palestinians much more broadly, the entire Palestinian people as being motivated not by a desire for freedom, not by a desire for better lives for their children, as we all want, uh, and not in any way uh, casting them as humans like all the rest of us, but rather people who are obsessively anti-Semitic, who are motivated only by their hatred of Jews. And that's why all of this has been going on for 75 years. And that's why this attack had, has happened. And that's why once and for all, we're going to stop it and, and launch this genocidal program. That's how that comes about. Um, so this report um, was already in the works to tell us how those dynamics can be put into play. And, um, you know, I think although we were talking about just the way um, uh, accusations of anti-Semitism are used to shut off and, and shut down any debate on U.S. policy towards Palestine and Israel, um, it, it, it ended up being used much more broadly to justify genocide at the same time, when we're seeing uh, demonstrations calling for ceasefire, the people who are demonstrating, whether uh, you know whether it's Jewish Voice for Peace, uh, whether it's Students for Justice in Palestine, or whether it is any other group that is demonstrating for them, they're called terror supporters. They're called supporters of Hamas. When you see uh, a perfect example, just yesterday uh, in Canada, there was a march in, in Toronto that went past a hospital that was Mount Sinai Hospital. This hospital was founded uh, over 100 years ago by four members of the Jewish community in Toronto. It is therefore labeled now a Jewish hospital. And the fact that the demonstrators went past it yelling, you know, shouting the slogan to free Palestine or whatever else they were, you know, ceasefire now, whatever else they were yelling um, and waving Palestinian flags, and one person had been climbing everything he could he could climb all along the route and climbed up on an awning uh, at the hospital. So they turned this into the the hospital has been targeted by and and by supporters of Hamas, not people talking about Palestinian rights, but supporters of Hamas. Terrorist supporters were was the words that were actually used. This is how. Um, and, and specifically saying that it, that the hospital was targeted because it was a Jewish institution, which at this point it isn't. I mean, there's many institutions that were founded by many hospitals in North America that were founded by the Jewish community. They're not necessarily Jewish institutions anymore, not part of that the network of Jewish institutions. They're just hospitals. Um, and in any case, I don't think anyone even considered that. It's along a very common protest route. Um, even this, this. Yeah, the, Mitchell. Every time we, every time we protest in, on the Upper East Side across Mount exactly. Sinai Hospital, it's, Mount a, it's an anti-Semitic march, right? Of course. Exactly. Yeah. But this, this one, this, this particular uh, um, uh, trope was so powerful. This use of the trope, anyway, was so powerful. Even Justin Trudeau made a statement about it. So it went all the way up to the top of Canada. So and and that um, that I think illustrates so much of what we were talking about in this report. It tells you, you know, how do we stop people from even just calling for a ceasefire, just calling for people to stop dying when thirty thousand people are already dead? How you know how can you possibly object to that? Well, you tell them that, that you say that they're anti-Semitic, that they're all Jew haters, um, and it seems like it shouldn't work, but it does. You know, I want to I want to touch on one other thing that came up when in your comments there, Mitchell, is the idea of this sort of distortion of reality, right? Where you know a small protest like this is turned into some kind of an anti-Semitic march. The distortion of reality, where Israel is constantly a victim of some greater forces as opposed to an obvious occupier and aggressor. One other uh, in. Uh, distortion or inversion of reality that I think is really critical in talking about what's going on today. And I don't know that it's talked about very much is the fact that on October 7th, the narrative around October 7th is that Israel was attacked. But I think anybody who's been following this conflict knows that that land is not actually Israel. That is land that was stolen. That is land that is legally not belong to Israel. And so the idea that Israel was attacked is an, also a justification of the occupation of land that doesn't even belong to Israel. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's a little bit of a, you're getting into a kind of a, a, of a sticky area. Israeli sovereignty is recognized and the areas that were attacked on October 7th were within the recognized borders of Israel. So, um, you know, we can talk about, I mean, and I think it's important to talk about, especially in, um, 
what I would consider, you know, people call this the post-colonial era. I consider this a neo-colonial era that we live in, uh, in, in 2024. And I mean, I think we can talk about all sorts of lands that have been stolen and, and I think we need to, and I think we need to address, um, the, the, the realities of, you know, whether it's America, whether it is, uh, you know, the entire Western hemisphere really, um, and, and the many other lands that have been colonized, uh, as well as, as, um, you know, and, and we can talk about Israel in the same way. And I think that's important to bring up. But I think the importance here, if we're going to be pragmatic about it, is to talk about this in terms of recompense and how we move forward um, from a, a, an unquestionably, uh, colon, on, on an unquestionably colonized land, which Israel absolutely is, no matter how much people buck at the, at the term settler colonialism when it's applied to Israel, that's clearly what the, the, the Zionist project was and is. Um, so how do we move forward now that there are generations and generations of people who are living there? Um, they're not going anywhere. And how do we, you know, how do we start to address that? Well, the first way we start to address it, I think, is by dealing with the idea that all people have human rights. And if we start from the basis that all the people between the river and the sea have human rights, the same human rights, then we also we also can deal with the question of, culp of responsibility. They have those as well. Um, so it, Israel, I think, is is and I think this is one of the things that makes Israelis nervous. Um, it is kind of right there at the at the at the vanguard of this question of how do we deal with. Um, you know, um, colonizers and colonized people. And I think it's particularly acute, obviously, in Israel, because the dispossession um, of the Palestinians is ongoing. The fact that that is still continuing. So how do we how do we move that forward? Those, I think, at least for the moment, like just today on February 14th, 2024, I have to be honest and say right now, I just want the, the killing in Gaza to stop. And then we'll move on to this question which is an important one. And I, I'm not minimizing it by saying that, but, but let, let, let me first stop uh, for another thir you know, 30,000 or however many people Netanyahu is planning to kill. Let me stop that first. Well, to that point, Sahar, I want to ask you this question because I think it kind of piggybacks somewhat off of Mitchell's comments there. Why do you think, and obviously in context of the report and all of your research, why is the Palestinian struggle not presented as an anti-colonial struggle when it self-evidently is? Well, there are many reasons for that. I think the first and foremost is that when you live in a country that itself was based on or created and founded on settler colonialism and slavery of or enslavement of Africans, there is a, it's unlikely that that same country is going to highlight similar behavior against another country that is its ally. Um, and I think, you know, if you look back at school curriculums and what public education uh, was teaching students about the founding of the country, it's really very recent that there has been this reckoning with the fact that we almost annihilated Native Americans. And many Americans don't even know that Native American children were literally abducted from their families and sent to boarding schools where they were forced to, quote unquote, assimilate right into white European Christian uh, culture and, and also sent to white families to raise the Native American out of these kids and out of their culture. So we have a very uh, checkered history to be charitable with, with settler colonialism and that we all hopefully know about the enslavement of Africans. So that there's that element of it, but there's also the fact that we are um, an empire in the neo-colonial uh, phase. If we want to use Mitchell's uh, terminology, we are a unit. It's a it's a we're the superpower. We're not. There's not even a bipolar international order anymore, uh, as we saw under the Cold War. So. We're going to have a media and a public school system that is going to perpetuate that. And that usually includes hiding the crimes and the war crimes and the human rights violations of our allies while pointing out and attempting to inf suddenly enforce 
those same human rights laws and norms against our enemies. And so we see this all the time in foreign policy where suddenly China and Russia and Syria and Iran, who are not allies, are uh, accused of all sorts of, of, of war crimes or, or human rights violations that are also the same types of behavior that we see in our allies. But suddenly, no, Israel is the victim. Israel is engaging in self-defense. There is no limit to what Israel can do in terms of how many civilians it can kill, uh, in terms of how many uh, hospitals and universities and schools and mosques it can bomb. It, it, it can do no wrong. Um, and so in many ways, what Israel has done quite effectively is it has convinced the American government and the American people that it is just the 51st state of the United States. In other words, we treat it as if it is our own military doing what it did in Iraq and what it did in Afghanistan with no accountability where you know there was no reason that our country had no legal justification and, and it wasn't it was not legal by international law for our country for the US military to occupy Iraq. But we did exactly the same. Well, this is self-defense. This is part of the war on terror. We send our military and, you know, the numbers are, are in, in contestation. But, the, but there are some estimates that nearly a million Iraqis died, right, as a result, not all from the U.S. military, but just as a result of the, of the, the war and the civil war and everything that came after it. So it's, you can't expect, I think it's too much to expect of our government. You know, our report is really hoping is targeting the audiences are the policymakers who are progressive and who see that and realize that U.S. foreign policy uh, that is very anti-black and anti-global South uh, and uh, anti-global East and imperialistic that that this is not in the best interest of the U.S. with in 2024 and globalization with social media with uh, transnational migration, with climate change. The, those days are, are waning and the U.S. needs to change how it engages with other people and stop treating people who are not European or ex outposts of the European project or the American project as savages, as barbarians, as inferior, as human animals, right? As the Israeli Minister of Defense stated explicitly. Um, and the other audience are the people by the public, the, the students, the educated elites, the journalists, so that they understand that the reason why it is so easy to dehumanize Palestinians is because of all these Islamophobic tropes that conflate Arab identity with Muslim identity and define it in a racist way that justifies any type of mistreatment, even when such mistreatment or abuse is against our norms, is against our liberal uh, commitments, is against international law, international human rights law, and making people understand that double standard and that hypocrisy, and then asking them, is this the type of society you want? Because when I was writing my book, The Racial Muslim, I spent a significant amount of time reading books about anti-Semitism in the early 20th century. There's a lot of similarities about what we're seeing. You know, the United States government refused to allow Jews escaping from the Holocaust to come to the United States after it had become very clear that they were being slaughtered. They were just, it was death camps. It was, um, I mean, it, it became clear. Uh, I, there was a point and still people said no. Why? Because they dehumanized them. They didn't think that they deserved refuge. They hated them more than they were committed to whatever human rights commitments they may have had. So, the past is prologue. And what really troubles me, and it's painful as a civil rights advocate, as a civil rights lawyer, it's very painful for me personally because I've committed my career to defending the civil rights of you know, minorities in particular, is when you have Zionists who self-identify as Jewish and who claim that they are committed to combating anti-Semitism. And those very same people and those very same organizations are actively persecuting uh, Muslims and Arabs in the United States who are trying to defend the, the humanity of Palestinians. And I just, I wonder, have you forgotten your own history? How can you now be the very same uh, 
group of people, right? And I'm not saying all Jews, I'm saying Zionists who self-identify as Jews. How can you do this, right? And do you have you not gone back and, and read what your grandparents and great-grandparents experienced? And I think that's, I mean, I assume that that may be one reason among many others why a progressive Jewish Americans, especially the younger generation, is refusing to subscribe to Zionism um, and particularly political Zionism that does justify the dehumanization of Palestinians and justifies attempting to uh, ruin the careers of Muslims uh, and Arabs, to dox them, to harass them, to intimidate them, to file frivolous complaints against them in universities, and to essentially completely quash their First Amendment rights. I mean, to me, the, the fact that you have protests at universities engaging in the most American tradition of free speech, protests, sit-ins at American universities, which if you study the Vietnam era, the Korean War era, World War II, I mean, universities for the last 60 or 70 decades, that's what distinguishes American universities from other universities. That is where ideas are contested and where you have nonviolent political activism. And when, though, when those happen on university campuses like Columbia or Rutgers or MIT or Harvard, they're criminalized. They're accused of being uh, criminals and accused of calling for the genocide of Jews when there's literally a genocide of Palestinians happening at the same time. And what, they're, what those protests are doing is not calling for a genocide of Jews. It is criticizing a nation state, the state of Israel, the same state that will accuse anyone who treats it exceptionally, right, who creates exceptions for Israel as anti-Semitic. And yet that very state wants to be exceptionalized and exempted from international norms. And that's not acceptable, right? So I think that, you know, the, it, it's just so disturbing to me. And I think it really harms the Jewish American community, um, even if it's not to the same extent as it harms Muslim and Arab American communities for anti-Semitism to be weaponized in such a bad faith and disingenuous way. Uh, and But ultimately, I think all of us, you know, your listeners and everybody who lives in the United States, we need to be driven by our principles. We need to be driven by the principle that all humans are equal. No one, no civilian deserves to be collectively punished through death, through uh, criminalization, through discrimination, that genocide is wrong, it is evil, regardless who the victim is, regardless who the perpetrator is, and that our taxpayer dollars should absolutely never fund war crimes by any state. Uh, and especially the worst war crime, which is genocide, the intent to exterminate uh, uh, or eliminate a group of people because of their identity. And ultimately what we're seeing right now, it's February 14th, 2024, is the Israeli government has pushed, has forcibly displaced, ethnically cleansed almost two, over 2 million Palestinians to Rafah, the border with, Israel, with Egypt. And now they're creating a buffer zone and ultimately they are going to kick them out. They're killing as many as they can, starving as many as they can, dehydrating as many as they can. And whoever miraculously survives is going to be ethnically cleansed into Egypt. So I can't think of any other reason you're exterminating Palestinians from Gaza, right? Um, so I, I ultimately, we, we as Americans, we can't control the state of Israel but we can control where our money is spent. We can control who we elect and what our elected officials do in our name and with our money. And I can't think of a more urgent time for us to be learning about, uh, about Palestine and about our government's role in the oppression of Palestinians. Indeed. Mitchell, um, as a veteran of anti-Zionist uh, politics and agitation and having written about this for so long, I want to ask you a little bit about the research that uh, went into this report regarding the right-wing Zionist and evangelical funding networks for a lot of this, how the actual money moves to influence the speech that goes into making what, what you know the report is about. Who's moving the money? How is it being done? I mean, is this a vast conspiracy? Is George Soros at the head of a tentacle network? I mean, what's going on, Mitchell? So it's um, 
it, it, it's, it's really not as complicated as it might uh, might appear. You know, you have a network. We, we've all seen the different organizations. Um, you know, some of them were the, the famous, more famous neoconservative or right-wing think tanks. Um, you know, we've seen uh, from David Horowitz Freedom Center, um, uh, the, uh, the Middle East Forum. We've seen many of these for many, many years, and they've, uh, they've engaged in this, you know, quite openly. It's not a big secret. Um, uh, they, from whether it's APAC, put you know who um, you know put out a poster of of you know the the the, the twin towers on nine eleven with Ilhan Omar in front of them as if she had supported such a thing. Um, these this is all how that happens, right? This is all how that is reinforced. So there's no you know it, it's not. Um, I don't think it's a, it's sort of a mysterious behind the scenes. In fact, I think it's quite overt. Um, we're seeing this in in very obvious and um, forthright ways from various pro-Israel or right-wing um, uh, foreign policy uh, sources. Be it um, and and some of it is um, <clears throat> some of it is more geared towards policy such as groups like the Foundation for the Defense of Democracy. Others are more ideologically based, like the Heritage Foundation. Um, you can look at, I think, uh, any list of anti-Muslim um, sites from, say, the Southern Poverty Law Center. What I think has become the most dangerous aspect of this is that all of that is on the right. We've seen this for years. What's happened in more uh, more recently is that you have ostensibly liberal Jewish, particularly Jewish organizations, uh, and I'm thinking here about the Anti Defamation League uh, most prominently, uh, that identify uh, criticism of Israel with anti-Semitism. That and this has been a, an outright campaign. This is something the ADL has been doing for years, but um, over the last couple of years. Uh, it has gotten much more intense. Um, whether it, and and again, you know, Jewish groups, Jewish Voice for Peace, again, um, uh, which I sit on the board of directors for, um, is one of their primary targets. So being Jewish is certainly no shield against this kind of thing. Um, but that the the idea that uh, th this is where I think it becomes much more dangerous because you're not just coming from the right and, and trying to co-opt the fight against anti-Semitism into a sort of right-wing right, right -wing agenda. You are now coming into the, the realm of civil liberties and the, the realm where many liberal Americans who, you know, most of whom are not experts on Palestine, most of whom do not know much of the history, do not know much of the present day conditions uh, on the ground in the West Bank, in Gaza, in uh, within Israel, in East Jerusalem, um, that that's just not you know they have they have other concerns other some some of them are not politically active some of them are politically active in other ways they just don't, they're not experts in this field and when they hear that this sort of criticism of Israel uh, is is actually anti-Semitic or it, it somehow coded anti-Semitism secretly anti-Semitism um, they they buy it because the worst thing especially in the United States I think one of the worst things you can be called is an anti-Semite. Um, part of that stems, I think, from the very guilt that Americans feel uh, from what Sahar pointed out uh, and how the United States closed its doors to Jews trying to escape uh, Nazi Germany. And I think uh, many, many Americans have felt like they're trying to make up for that ever since. Uh, this is the wrong way to do it by by basically turning that on, uh, you know, against other people. Um, I think I guess what I would want to point out most specifically about that is that the ADL is walking into sort of what I would call a classic anti-Semitic trap because historically the Nazis and, and the Holocaust, that isn't actually typical of historical anti-Semitism in Europe. It's not the typical experience of Jews um, over the centuries in Europe. It's not how we experienced anti-Semitism. The way we experienced anti-Semitism is we flee from one place, we would go to another, We'd make some accommodation for protection um, from from you know from the, the government or, or whatever or whoever we were uh, you know whatever group of people uh, you know we could find to 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 work with, 
And it would go along like that for a while until those people needed a scapegoat. The scapegoat would be the Jews. The cycle would repeat. We would, we would face persecution. We would go somewhere else. Um, that, that, sort of, that sort of setup, the, the, the sense that um, you're, you're making a, a quote-unquote deal with the devil, um, but one that has a way of fomenting resentment among other people. That's been the historical pattern of, of anti-Semitism. The ADL is replicating that by carving out a special Israel exception to free speech. They are attacking free speech in order to protect Israeli apartheid. And people, when people recognize that, they get rather upset about it. Fortunately, to date, most people who get upset about that get mad at Israel. But there are some number of those people who tend to then turn to the Jews, um, at the Jews collectively. And that becomes a very, very dangerous thing. And should this situation change where it becomes politically advantageous, as we're seeing in some corners of the Republican Party right now, um, and it becomes politically advantageous to start talking about Jewish space lasers, or it becomes politically advantageous to talk about, uh, you know, what, what you mentioned, you know, the giant George Soros conspiracy. That has a way of boomeranging right back on Jews and, and all of the things that have been done to secure um, Israel's place, special protected place that it cannot be criticized, that it has to constantly get its you know, $4 billion a year in military aid, and you dare not question that, that becomes fodder for anti-Semitism. So, you know, even on the most self-interested level, um, I, you know, I would certainly see this as something that needs to be opposed even beyond the fact, you know, if, if, if you can't, um, if you can't convince, a, 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 you know, another Jewish person that this is wrong because it's wrong to persecute Palestinians, well, maybe if you, you know, consider what the long-term ramifications are going to be for the Jewish people, we're already seeing them start to develop. Uh, maybe that might, uh, con you know, convince some people to try and choose a different path because historically, the only thing that has ever really defended Jews from anti-Semitism is the same thing that defends Muslims from Islamophobia, that defends people of color from racism and its solidarity with other oppressed peoples. That's how uh, you fight these things. That's how, you know, when all of these uh, fights against oppression become one fight, it becomes immensely powerful. As soon as you try to break off and say, only my oppression matters, you lose. Yeah, I agree with that. And I want to turn to Sahar and I build a little bit off of what you were just saying, Mitchell, by pointing out that the political side of the sort of funding networks and all of that is very important, but there's also a social and cultural dynamic to it as well. I mean, I experienced this as basically every other American Jew in the form of the birthright Israel concept. The idea that billionaire Jews would fund organizations that will pay for you to go to Israel and pretend like that land is somehow yours or you're connected to it in some metaphysically important way or something along those lines. And when I was supposed to do that in the early 2000s, it was kind of unheard of that a Jew would be like, I boycott this. This is fucked up. I'm not doing that, you know? And I mean, it caused a lot of tension with my parents and it was weird and whatever, but I mean, we got past it. But the point is that a lot of Jews from the United States and from the West generally do experience Zionism and Zionist propaganda first, maybe outside their parents, but first in the real world, in the adult world, in the form of birthright. You want to talk a little bit about the importance of that? Well, I'll, I'll weigh in a little, and then I certainly think Mitchell is better qualified to talk about that. But I, I will highlight a few things. First, just to respond to Mitchell. Uh, so not only are these groups, these self-identified Zionist groups, um, potentially hurting Jews from a pragmatic perspective, from the boomerang effect, but they're actually fomenting hate against another group and doing the very thing that they claim is the basis of their own persecution in Europe over centuries. And that, that kind of goes back to what I said is how ironic, hypocritical, and hurtful that is. And I, I hope that people who uh, subscribe to the Anti-Defamation League or any other Zionist organization recognize that these organizations have caused a significant amount of harm to Muslim communities by pitting these two, by creating this 
false frame of a zero-sum game, that the only way to protect Jews from anti-Semitism is to uh, vilify uh, Arabs, Muslims, Palestinians, and oftentimes Americans don't know the difference between these otherwise diverse uh, groups of people. Um, so, so that's just important that if you know, to the Jewish audience members is just please be cognizant uh, that Zion, that you are not inadvertently or maybe advertently uh, perpetuating the very harm that you are rightfully concerned about with your own people. And and obviously, I have the same message to the Muslims when I speak to them is how we have to be very clear that when we are defending the rights of Palestinians, we are not um, targeting Jews as a people, right? Or Judaism as a religion. And I'll tell you, Muslims are highly sensitive to that trap because that's what happened to them. Well, that's been happening to them since 9-11 is that you have a bunch of criminals, some of whom are state actors and some of whom are non-state actors who are engaging in all sorts of war crimes and human rights violations, and they claim they're doing it in the name of Islam, just like Israel is claiming to do it in the name of protecting the Jewish homeland or the Jewish people. Uh, and that is not necessarily the truth, right? And it, just because people say that doesn't mean that we have to believe them. Um, but with regard to the birthright issue, you know, I recently watched Israelism, the documentary, which I believe was produced uh, by Jewish Americans. And I, as a Muslim and Arab American, learned a tremendous amount. I did not know very much about uh, these birthright trips. I, The extent that I was familiar with them is that from my Palestinian friends, they would tell me how devastated they were on a regular basis of knowing that you know an American or a white American who happens to be Jewish whose parents came from Eastern Europe, who knows nothing about the Middle East, never visited there, uh, and can just go and get citizenship. Whereas their grandparents had been ethnically cleansed and their parents couldn't go back and their home had been stolen and they had been stateless and they had relatives who were stateless and trapped in these miserable refugee camps, et cetera, et cetera. And how that just hurts them so much. And I had learned about this through their experience. And so when I watched the Israelism film, I got to kind of see that that other perspective. And so this is kind of goes to the heart of why it's so important to engage in education. And, and I'll put my kind of professor hat on in my director role of the Center for Security, Race and Rights at Rutgers Law School. It's the first center that focuses on human and civil rights of Muslims, Arabs, and South Asians, which naturally will include, although it's not exclusive to, the experiences of Palestinians. And so we did a series of teach-ins, which I'm going to put a little plug for the website. Please check it out, csrr.rutgers.edu, and you'll find it under our resources tab, where we're now trying to educate people about the Palestine-Israel, what we're going to call it, issue, or the definitely the Palestinian loss of, of their state, and, and just that history, and trying to highlight the facts that have most impacted Palestinians. And what has been the response? Two responses. First, a very large uh, show up, uh, showing. So, so we had so many people who sign up for these teachings, who watch them on our YouTube channel, and who praise us. The other response has been a concerted attack against me and against the center and against Rutgers by Zionist groups that are either in Zionist elected officials that are Christian as well as Jewish essentially trying to censor us, trying to shut it down, trying to silence any debate and any education. And so how ironic that these right-wing groups and individuals and elected officials that identify as Republicans who are all about the founding principles of free speech and political freedom and freedom of thought and critical thinking and individual rights, that suddenly when one, when we're educating in a way that they don't want us to do, even though it's facts that we're presenting, that suddenly they want to live in a dictatorship. Right? So it's dictatorship for you minorities, democracy for us white privileged people. And I think that's something else we need to really call out. Yeah, that's pretty much how fascists always want it. Um, Mitchell, I want to just ask you to give me, let's say, two minutes of comments on birthright. Go ahead. 
fortunately, my, I myself did not ever go on uh, a birthright tour, but I know many people who did. Um, it's um, look, it, connecting Jews to um, to Israel is a fundamental part of being able to spread the 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 Israel narrative from generation to generation. Um, and it also, I think, and it's important, I think, to remember this, it, it forms an, an identity bond for many young Jews, um, especially young Jews who are not particularly religious, because, you know, it, it, ends up, it, it ends up defining for them their Jewish identity. And this is one of the reasons when we hear, and, and, and I have sympathy sometimes for, well, many, most of the time, for college students uh, in particular, who say they feel attacked when they hear Israel being called an apartheid state, when they hear, you know, accusations of genocide, and they feel like they're actually being attacked. And the reason that I have sympathy for them is because from their point of view, they don't, they don't understand Israel. They don't know what Israel does. They, when they go on a birthright tour, they're not going to Ramallah. They're not going to uh, the Shrefat uh, refugee camp. They're certainly not going to Gaza. Um, they do not see how Palestinians live. They see a very, you know, for the most part, a modern uh, European style or Western style, lovely country, a lot of fun things to do, a vibrant capitalist society that they feel particularly comfortable in. Um, and, and they, that, that becomes their Jewish identity on many, many, on many, many levels. And so, number one, they're being told that Israel is being unfairly attacked and they don't have the facts necessarily at hand to, to, to confront that. So it, uh, when, when you combine that with the fact that viscerally they do feel attacked, um, this is where, you know, I think it's such a, you know, I, where I can feel some sympathy for them. And at the same time, I also feel really angry at the people who are lying to them because they are making their children afraid. They are making their children feel defensive um, because they are believing that there is an Israel that never existed and certainly does not exist now. There was a time, um, you know, if you go back 40, 50 um maybe, you know, 40 or 50 years where there was real potential that you could have changed this, this, uh, this dynamic, this, this dynamic of dispossession, of occupation, of apartheid into something that everyone could have lived with. At some point, you know, had, had the concept of real equal rights ever been part of the, of the discourse that could have happened. So, um, but what you have now in Israel is absolutely, um, if not an outright fascist state, certainly a proto-fascist state, certainly an apartheid state, um, but that's not the Israel that people, that these young people think exist. And so, you know, we are not only, I would say, with, with things like birthright, we're not only perpetuating that apartheid and, and the ongoing Nakba and, and the program of genocide that we see now in Gaza, we are also hurting as Jews, we are hurting our own young people because we are deceiving them and making them feel attacked when they should be feeling like, hey, wait a second, this is being done in my, you know, as, as some of, some of you, know, you know, as a growing number of young Jews do feel, wait a minute, this is being done in my name and I'm going to put a stop to it. Sahar, I want to turn to you really quickly and I want to ask you if you could in a few minutes, uh, give us a little bit of insight into what the report highlights with regard to kind of a comparative look at Ukraine and Palestine, where Ukrainian victims versus Palestine victims, why are they seen so differently? Well, I hate to be too reductionist about it, but it has a lot to do with race and racism. Uh, now, granted, geopolitics certainly makes a difference, but Russia is considered a foe of the of the West, and Ukraine is considered an ally. So, to some extent, we are. You know, there is certainly this desire by the U.S. government, anyway, to support the Ukraine because of the NATO uh, agenda and because of the the, the post World War II East versus Eastern or excuse me post Cold War. Uh, East Europe versus West Europe, Western Europe geopolitical competition and, and desire for regional hegemony. Uh, so I don't want to uh, discard that. But 
from the American people's perspective, many of whom, as we've discussed today, are not that well-versed on foreign policy. It's not their priority. And you see that in countries across the world. Most, most citizens and residents of countries are much more concerned and informed to the extent they are about domestic issues, because that's what affects them directly. So what is it that would make Americans not see on television Syrians being uh, annihilated, gas, gassed by Bashar al-Assad, uh, being killed right in a civil war and fleeing and not want to do what Americans are proud of doing, which is be a refuge for people uh, seeking fleeing persecution, especially post-World War II. What would make Americans witness? It's all live on social media, on television, on YouTube. Uh, Palestinian children being bombed, having limbs cut off. We just recently saw a horrendous scene of a, a young girl being, she was hanging from a building after Israel bombed residential buildings in Rafah. I mean, we've just seen some horrendous scenes. And instead of having sympathy for them, and instead of asking our government, you know, how can we stop this? How can we at the very least not fund it? How can we put pressure on that government that is our ally to stop it? They're saying, yeah, keep going, keep going, right? It's as if it, it, we're, we're just in this gladiator's nightmare um, and the Palestinians are, are the enemy. Uh, and yet when we see the Ukrainians being bombed and we see the Russians bombing the Ukrainians, we, most Americans opened their arms. You saw Ukrainian flags everywhere. You saw you know, all sorts of, of, of efforts to send food and humanitarian aid and have sympathy. And, and the U.S. government made it extremely easy uh, and very administratively fast to come here if you were Ukrainian, even if, whether it's permanently or temporarily. So that, why, why are we doing that? Because... We see Arabs and we see Muslims and we see people from the Middle East and North Africa uh, or people from Central Asia, but particularly Muslim majority countries as threats, as terrorists, as terrorist sympathizers, as future terrorists, as, as people we do not want in our country. Uh, and we don't do that to Ukrainians. Why aren't we collectively punishing Russians in America? Why isn't our government sending FBI agents into, Christ, into Russian Orthodox churches like they did to mosques because they're white. That's why. And, and I know that sounds very simplistic, but anybody who understands how race works, there's always a, a line of insider-outsider, and there are multiple lines. But one line that has been tenacious has been the racial line. And so, again, going back to the book that I wrote, The Racial Muslim, is essentially arguing that for Muslims, it has become a racial line that is deeply, deeply entrenched. And one just needs to study the experiences of African-Americans and Black communities to realize it is not easy to get rid of that racial line that excludes you, right, from the privileges of equality and dignity um, and freedom. Mitchell, um, we sometimes we get emails um, fairly regularly from young people who find the podcast and uh, who are just diving into some of these things. I remember when I first found Counterpunch when I was like 20. You know, I know what that feels like. So I want to ask you, um, what brief words would you have for some young person who just randomly came across this podcast and is listening to this conversation, getting involved in some of these issues? You know, I think uh, the most important the most important thing I can say uh, to to any young person who's getting involved in this issue or any issue, especially you know uh, international affairs, but I think it's true on just about any political affair, you know, is read skeptically and understand what it is that you're reading. And I would say, look, even my, you know, you're going to go read my book, read uh, my articles, and understand that I'm coming from a particular point of view. Find out what that point of view is. It's somebody who grew up as as uh, an Orthodox Jew in an extremely Zionist environment. I obviously have uh, moved uh, to a very different political position since then. Um, but, you know, understand and, and go, you know, go ahead and find, uh, you know, try to find quality things that 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 offer a different point of view and see what makes sense to you. Um, don't, you know, I, I think one of the things that is really, really helpful to me is a sense that, you know, 
I have, um, you know, I have heard from the pro-Israel, the, the, the Zionist point of view quite thoroughly. I know what this, what this view is, you know, it, it's, um, and it, we, we can look at that, uh, you know, in terms of also American history. You know, I, I learned the standard history um, for, I was fortunate enough that, that I was able to learn sort of more, uh, uh, I would say realistic history, but but the you know history from a, an indigenous point of view of uh, from from the point of view of people of color, uh, from different views as I was growing up and learning American history, you know bring in all of those things. It actually doesn't necessarily help to even if you're on what I would call the right side of history. It doesn't help to be dogmatic about that and to not understand the point of view of those who do, who may have who may have, for whatever reason, sincere disagreements with you uh, that are not only motivated by hate. Maybe they're motivated by, you know, knowing things in a different way or a different point of view. That was what I would say is important. And it's particularly important in Israel-Palestine, especially because there's an entire industry in this case um, that is devoted to promoting a narrative that is simply not not true. You know, it goes back to what I was saying before about why I feel for for some of the the younger uh, uh, Jewish people who are feeling you know feeling attacked and feeling um, afraid because um, it's important to know why they feel that way. It is important to if we're going to really change this, and it's important to grasp the industry, uh, literally the propaganda industry that builds up a a whatever term you want to use, pro-Israel or Zionist narrative that has become um, accepted on some level by a great many people on the left and uh, in the mainstream of uh, Western society. And in many, you know, there, there is, and, and to be able to discern when you're trying to get through there, what is absolutely not true, what is true but distorted, which is the bulk of it, um, and and what is being left and most importantly what is being left out um because and that comes back again to our report because what's being left out are the voices of palestinians ultimately what we're saying in this report is how do we get around these issues how do we address these issues when you look at our recommendations it's all about hearing from palestinians you know that is that is fundamentally how you address this. Yeah. So you know, and I believe yes, hear from Israelis too. I think you need to hear these things, whether you think it's you know, uh, you know, good or bad or however you look at it. You still need to hear it. I mean, you need to understand it. But but that's not the stuff that's hard to find. The stuff that is being kept from people is is the Palestinian voice, and make sure you're hearing that not just from frankly from people like me you know, an American Jew, um, you're not here, you know, fine. I, yeah, hear what I have to say, listen to it, but hear it from, hear, seek out Palestinian voices because I can't tell you their story. Well, and, and if I just want to add one other thing that's really important from the Arab perspective <laughs> is um, I, I think that Jewish Americans who are of European origin and who are white presenting physically need to acknowledge that they have white privilege, especially vis-a-vis -vis Arabs. Because what I have noticed is the uh, extensive empathy and sympathy and, and sensitivity to Jewish American perspectives, even when they're clearly unfounded or they are clearly based on uh, information that is either inaccurate or only one-sided, in contrast to the callousness and cruelty of the response of the American public towards Palestinians who have family in Gaza, who have had tens, if not over a hundred people in their family killed by Israel, uh, or, or friends of Palestinians or spouses of Palestinians who are very directly impacted by the 100,000 Palestinians who have either been killed, injured, are missing, plus hundreds of thousands that are literally starving to death, right? There is a manufactured famine that is happening right now uh, among 2 million Palestinians. And so there are very real impacts and harms, and you, there's no sympathy for, for those people who are in fact a second or third degree. And, and as a race scholar, as a critical race theorist, to me, that's all white privilege and white fragility. 
just like black people are, are you know, young black men are seen as, as predators, super predators. They're often treated as men rather than minors when they're boys. Women, black women are seen as not feeling pain, not experiencing pain. I mean, a lot of what we see in uh, the literature about racism against black people and other minorities and the privileging of whiteness there are many of those dynamics happening be, uh, when you're comparing the response to Jewish Americans' uh, uh, responses to what's happening in Gaza and the Palestinian and Arab and Muslim responses. So I just think it's important for us to name that. And I have really been in, impressed with the young Jewish American college students who are clearly well-versed on anti-racism work because uh, presumably they were active in maybe Black Lives Matter, in the Me Too movement, and many of these social movements that, that they came of age during. So that helped to sensitize them and recognize that they have white privilege. But I think when you're dealing with Palestine, Israel, many of them, many, many Jewish Americans seem to just not realize that we're not in the, in the early 20th century. I mean, you're actually the white Protestant who has the privilege vis-a-vis the Muslim Arab who is openly bashed, vilified in the media, and and has all kinds of caricatures and and racist tropes peddled against them. And that's a privilege that one has a responsibility, right, to use to stop and decrease discrimination, not to further and essentially punch down. Well, in the uh, time-honored tradition of Counterpunch Radio promising to go 40 minutes and going over an hour, we're going to have to leave it there. Um, I want to thank Sahar Aziz and Mitchell Plitnik for coming on Counterpunch. Uh, Sahar Aziz, again, is the Distinguished Professor of Law and the Chancellor Social Justice Scholar at Rutgers Law School. The book, The Racial Muslim, When Racism Quashes Religious Freedom, Sahar Aziz Law is the uh, Twitter handle, and Sahar SaharAzizLaw.com is the website. Uh, Mitchell Plitnik, get him on Twitter, Substack, and uh, wherever else he's available. Thank you guys for coming on Counterpunch Radio. Thanks for having us. Listeners, as always, thank you again for all of the support. Go to Counterpunch, do the subscribe thing. Talk to you again next time.